Well, church, good morning. You all right? All right. Good. Hey, if you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Uh, it's our delight to introduce to you Mr. Trell Ross. Trell is here uh, this weekend as a, we got connected. We got connected during COVID, amazingly, over Zoom. So Zoom works. Uh, and we got a chance here to introduce to you Trell. Trell is getting ready to plant in the Rock Hill area. He's inherited a building like we have. Uh, he's got a core group of about 35 people. We got connected through the Pillar Network, which is a group that uh, our church is connected to. Uh, has shares a lot of the same DNA for us that we're disciple makers, that we are uh, about exposition of God's word. And uh, Trell and Lauren and Oakland seven-month-old Oakland are here today to share God's word with you here. So they're getting ready to plan. Our launch date is August 20, 22nd. So we've got a little bit of time before they get going. So Trell is going to share from the scriptures here for us today. I'm going to pray for him and for Lauren, and I trust that he will bless us here this morning. All right? So Trell, let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for these few minutes as uh, your word uh, gets ready to be preached. We pray that for all of those of us who are in this room, that our hearts would be open and receptive to what you want to say to us here today. Father, for the hearts that are discouraged and despairing and weak, I pray that the word would build up, would shore up the foundations of our lives, that you would uh, meet us through your spirit and through the preached word, and that you would uh, take people who are in this room and may, them, may they never be different as a result of encountering your scripture here today. Would you build us up? Would you encourage us? Would you form us in your word through what Terrell is about to bring to us here out of the Psalms? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Terrell. Thanks, Pastor Steve. Well, good morning, Citadel Square Baptist. Uh, I, I don't know if I shared this with any of your pastors, but uh, this is actually my second time preaching at Citadel Square Baptist. Uh, so I attended a, a church planner's assessment here back in 2019. Uh, we were over in the, I'm guessing like y'all's kind of overflow or, or multi-purpose area. Um, and in doing that, uh, we got to have a tour at the end. And so they brought us over here to the sanctuary and I just thought, wow, like what a beautiful space that is. And I remember telling Lauren during that trip, like, man, it'd be so cool to preach in that sanctuary one day. Um, and then about probably nine months to a year later, I met your pastors through the Pillar Network, heard about the work that the Lord is doing among y'all, and was super encouraged by that. Um, and, and then as we started to talk about potential partnerships, Pastor Steve asked me to come and, and preach. It's like, wow, I get to, I get to go and, and, and preach in this sanctuary with uh, this cool story behind it about God taking an old building and an older church and, and, and uh, replanting it to, to just give a demonstration of what it looks like when his gospel is preached and new life can be granted. Uh, so really, really honored to be here with y'all this morning. Uh, looking forward to spending time in the Word. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn to Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm. I mean, Psalm 2. And while everybody's going there, I do want to give a bit of context. Uh, in studying this psalm, I found that it's comparable to a new pair of shoes. <laughs> you know how you put a new pair of shoes on and your walk visibly changes because you, you found this, uh, this newfound confidence with this new pair of shoes? Uh, well, I think Psalm 2 would have been like new shoes for the nation of Israel. Uh, it was written and declared during times when a new king would be preparing to take his throne and begin his reign over the nation. 
And when it was declared, it served to be this kind of affirmation of, of confidence in the king and, and, and to look at an earthly king and say, because of the God that this earthly king worships, we're confident that our, our nation will be taken care of. Uh, so their reading and declaration of this song would have been like them as a nation of Israel declaring with pride and, and kind of walking with a new swagger as a new king uh, took the throne in Israel. And we're actually going to see here as we read the psalm in a second that it mentions kings and rulers a few different times. And that's because it was written during a time where, where monarchy was the, the primary governmental structure amongst the people of the world. So there were these kings that ruled nations, and, and there were a lot of battles and wars that were led by these kings. And, and it was a common belief that the amount of victory that a king saw was a direct correlation of the favor that that king would have been receiving from his God. So if a king worshipped God ABC, and he was victorious in battle, then other rulers and other nations would look at that king and say, oh, God ABC must be a God worthy of me looking into and potentially worshiping. And this psalm, last bit of context here, is also what we call a royal psalm. And that means it was written to, it was written by the people of God that we know to be the one true God of the world. And it was written to, to again, tell of God's favor toward an earthly king. And so in writing this and declaring it, these people would have been demonstrating confidence in their king, their God, and in, in, in the king that God had put in place to demonstrate his earthly rule through an earthly figure. And so I've titled this sermon, Confidence in the Kingship, and I titled it that because I believe that as we read it, we're going to see that this psalm still teaches us as God's people today how we can demonstrate that we have confidence in the kingship of our God. So the title is Confidence in the Kingship. And if you're a note taker like myself, you'll probably appreciate this. I'm going to give you my outline up front. Uh, so there's four points here. And in walking through the psalm, I think we should be asking ourselves a question. How do we show that we have confidence in God's kingship? How do we demonstrate that we have confidence in God's kingship? And these are the four ways I think we can do it. The first thing we want to do is to recognize sinful raging. We want to recognize sinful raging. And then the second thing we want to do, we want to reinforce righteous ridicule. Reinforce righteous ridicule. And then the third thing, we want to respond to God-given royalty. Respond to God-given royalty. And then the fourth way we demonstrate confidence in our God's kingship is to rejoice in sovereign rule. We can rejoice and sovereign rule. So recognize sinful raging, reinforce righteous ridicule, respond to God-given royalty, and rejoice in sovereign rule. We're going to walk through the psalm here, uh, but I'd love to read it ahead of time and then just go before the Lord once more and ask for, for his help as, as we do prepare to walk through it. Uh, so would you stand with me in honor of God's word being read? Psalm 2, starting at the first verse, it reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree, he said, I will declare the Lord's decree, he said to me, you are my son. 
Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment, but all who take refuge in him are happy. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated, and would you join me for another moment of prayer? Father, we come to you this morning giving you thanks for your word. Lord, we thank you that as your people, uh, we've not been left blind to walk this life striving to glorify your name. But you and your kindness have inspired a word that we can take heed to. And it tells us that if we treasure it in our hearts, then we won't be led to sin against you. And so, Father, I pray this morning as we study your word, as we study the truth from Psalm 2, that we would find this to be true that we'd be faithful to treasure it in our hearts and that it would compel us to live lives of righteousness before you. That it would help us, God, to demonstrate that we do have confidence in you as our king. That we'd be faithful to, to recognize sinful raging when we see it. To reinforce righteous ridicule that you give. To respond to your God-given royalty and God to rejoice in the sovereign rule that you have over our lives and over the entire world. Would you use your word to compel us toward this end this morning? Father, I pray for my own heart, my own mind, for my preaching this morning. Would you use me so that your word would serve toward the end that you have inspired it to serve toward? God, I'm human. You're divine. I'm imperfect. You're perfect. And yet I stand here trying to communicate on your behalf. So God, I pray and ask that you would make up for all of my inadequacy that you would use me as a tool in your hand to build up your church, to edify your saints, to have the gospel go forward and penetrate hearts, truly changing lives and altering eternities, Father. I pray all of this in the name of your Son, Christ, and it's on your Holy Spirit that I depend. Amen. So we see in verse 1 that this psalm opens up with a question. And that's a rhetorical question that the psalmist eventually ends up answering himself. He says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. So with this question that the psalmist asks, he presents us with the reality of there being a problem. And the problem he shows us is that there are people and nations raging and plotting in vain. And now these two terms here, uh, rage and, and plot, I want us to actually think about what they mean. Uh, to rage, if you were to go look up this term, you'd find something close to this definition. To rage means uh, to formally be against someone or something and to be so with a lot of commotion. And then to plot means to meditate or to devise schemes for particular action. So when the psalmist says that these nations are raging or plotting in vain and doing it against the Lord, Right from the outset, he's showing us and he's making the point that there are people and nations who are deliberately against God in their thoughts and in their actions. And then he reiterates that same point in verse 2. And so in writing this, it seems that the psalmist is kind of taking a step back 
and he's scanning the environment around him. He's taking in what he sees in the world around him. And what he finds is that there are people who are being intentional and thoughtful about sin. This word that's translated plotted here is the same word used in Psalm 1 verse 2 when it mentions how a righteous person meditates on God's instruction day and night. And I just believe that Psalms 1 and 2 were initially written together. Instead of being split into, into two separate psalms in the way that we now read it, it's believed that these psalms were initially one psalm that would have been read at the same time. And so when the author writes what we now read as Psalms 1 and 2, and he, he, he's making these observations of the world, and then he's quick to make the point that those who are in right standing with God meditate about how they can be obedient to his commands. He's also making the point that those who are sinful meditate about how they can escape God's commands. So right from the outset, we see that. Those who are in right standing with God are intentional about thinking about how to obey God, and then those who are in wrong standing with the Lord, those who want to act against him, are intentional about plotting about how they can rage against him in their sin. One of these things is good. It's called righteousness. And the other one is bad. It's called sinfulness. So these very first two psalms, the first two psalms of, of 150 chapters of poetry given to God's people so that we'd have wisdom about how to live our lives on earth. These first two psalms and the first two of them here are helping us to draw this clear line between sin and righteousness, pleasing God and dishonoring God, meditation for meaningful good and meditation for pointless bad. These first two psalms, they draw that line for us and, and they help us to see that this isn't a line that should be blurred. When righteousness is seen, it should be called righteousness. And when sinfulness is seen, it should be called sinfulness. These things should be called exactly what they are. Do y'all notice how upfront the psalmist is and, and how he just kind of lays it out there? He says, why are they raging and plotting in vain? He says they're taking a stand and conspiring against God. So in other words, the psalmist is saying, hey, nations, what you're doing, the way you're, sin, or the way you're living, the, the things you're planning, that is sin. This is exactly what the psalmist does from the outset here. And so my first encouragement for us is to do exactly what the psalmist does as well. We want to imitate him as this. I think we as God's people, like the psalmist, we can demonstrate that we have confidence in the kingship of Christ by being faithful to recognize sinful raging. We want to be a people who recognize sinful raging. And now this won't always be an easy thing. I'm sure that y'all know we, we live in a society that is increasingly becoming harder and harder and, and for us as Christians to live a righteous life and it's becoming more and more secular and, and, and more and more liberal in, in all kinds of ways. And so we should, when, when we strive to uphold this clear line between sin and righteousness, we're bound to upset some people, right? When we strive to, to demonstrate the clarity the difference between what's pleasing to the Lord and what's displeasing to the Lord, we are bound to upset the world that watches. I mean, think about how this was probably received from the psalmist. Here he is as a king of Israel, and he's writing about how these other kings are, are, are living their lives in vain. He's saying that their efforts and their plans to, 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 to make plans to live apart from the way of the Lord, he says all of those efforts are in vain. And now those kings take this and read this, it's probably not received very well. These are kings, nations, 
rulers. They're already doing their own thing, not wanting to live in obedience to God. So they probably didn't care to hear this psalm is when he, when he writes and, and tells them that the way they're living and the things they're planning were pointless plans. But one reason it's important for God's people to stand firm and to be faithful in recognizing sinful raging is because if we don't uphold this line between sin and righteousness, the world won't know that there's a line existing. The world that we live in, friends, is dependent upon us as God's people to show them the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. Uh, th- at this point in the psalm brings to, to mind Apostle Peter and his first epistle. In 1 Peter 1.16, he reminds us of, of God's command for us to be holy because God is holy. And then later in chapter 2 of his epistle, verse 11, he writes that we should abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul and conduct ourselves honorably amongst the Gentiles so they'll observe our good works and potentially follow us in those good works. And then again, same letter, same author, Apostle Peter in his first epistle, first epistle chapter 2, verse 15, he says, it is God's will that we as his people silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing what is good. So friends, we see from this psalmist, we see from the Apostle Peter, and we see from the rest of the Bible that when God saves us into a relationship with himself, he gives us a responsibility to live holy lives so that the world around can observe our lives and see what holiness actually is. So they can see the difference between holiness and sin. And sometimes our striving to live holy lives will call for us to to recognize the reality of sin and the lack of holiness around us. So you know that old phrase, uh, only God can judge me? I think that phrase is trash. I think whoever made up that phrase took a verse out of context because it's not judgment to call sin, sin. We want to recognize sinful raging because the world's perception of holiness depends upon us doing so. Those who don't know God, friends, are dependent upon us who do know God to provide them with a picture of restored holiness and what it looks like to live a redeemed life for the Lord's glory. So strive for holiness. Call sin what it is. Recognize sinful raging. The next thing I want to point out is uh, the tone and and the terminology that this psalm uses to describe this sinful raging. Do y'all notice that that this is warlike language? Just glance back at the verses right quick. These terms are rage, plot against, take a stand, conspire against. These are terms that you see in military environments, right? And I think the psalmist probably did this on purpose. I think he wants us to read this psalm and have a picture of of warlike battle in mind. But now the interesting thing is that if you look at verse 3, you can almost be caught with a bit of sympathy toward the nations and, and these people who rage. Because while the psalmist uses this language of, of war and battle, the only thing we see the nations actually trying to do is to free themselves. They're trying to tear off chains and, and free themselves from ropes that they're entangled in. So these actions, at face value, they seem more defensive than offensive, right? And it probably sounds familiar to what we see in our culture nowadays. I'm just living my life. It's my body. I can do what I want with it. I'm not hurting anyone, so why is it wrong for me to make decisions for myself? These here in the psalm, these people are just defending themselves too, right? But if that's the case, and it's not harmful 
to them or anyone else the way that they choose to live? Why is it that the psalmist uses such extreme language to describe their acts of trying to be free? Why is it that he uses warlike language? When I was in middle school, uh, there was this, this, this trend that went on of the promotion of fistfights. So what would happen is, is, is you hear about these two boys that were going to go toe-to-toe. They were angry at one another, and, and uh, they wanted the whole school to know that they were going to brawl at some point in the next couple of weeks. And so this advertising would start, and there would be a place named, there would be a time named, the boys would be named, and, and because we were all middle schoolers with our brains still developing, uh, we'd show up <laughs> anticipating seeing this fight. There was all this excitement about making sure you were at the right place at the right time so that you wouldn't miss it. And then you'd get there and, and, and just as promised, the fighters would be present. And so what would happen is a circle would form around them and this, this roar of excited middle schoolers anticipating seeing a fight would start to rise. And the boys would be in the middle of the circle just kind of circling one another and, and sizing one another up. Then they'd approach one another they ball their fists up, and they would. <laughs> they play a quick game of rock, paper, scissors. I kid you not, this happened several times. There were all these falsely advertised fights. <laughs> and now every time one of these fights took place, one of these fist fights, you have a ton of disappointed middle schoolers. But hear me out on this. I think the reason we were so disappointed is because the language that was used to describe the fist fight, it was an inaccurate representation of what actually took place. But I don't think that's what we have when we read Psalm 2. This language isn't giving false advertisement. Because while we can, can look at verse 3 and, and, and feel sympathy toward those who appear to only want freedom, we must remember that anytime we try to free ourselves of, of God's rule and His reign in our lives, that is an act of spiritual violence. See, friends, God is the one who created all things. And when He created all things, He didn't make a category for His creation to act in contrast to His will. That category, that, the, the, the category of creation doing what they want in contrast to what God wants, That category is called sin. That's a man-made category. And we've got to remember that that we actually declare war against God when we go off and and, and seek to live our own ways and, 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 and plot about how we're going to sinfully rage against the one who's supposed to rule in our lives. When we willfully create schemes to live in that category of rebellion, that's war against God. He's creator. He sets the standards. We're created. We live by God's standards. That's just the way it is. God's rules always win. And anything in contrast to his rule is sinful raging, and it should be called as such. So we show that we have confidence in the kingship of Christ when we recognize sinful raging. When we recognize sinful raging, And then we show the same confidence when we reinforce righteous ridicule. When we reinforce righteous ridicule. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. 
the Lord ridicules them. So the text says that the Lord laughs at and ridicules those who rage or plot against him. Now, to laugh at or, 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 and, and, and ridicule someone means to kind of scoff at them and, and, and to dismiss whatever their action is that they're doing. And this isn't something we should take lightly when God does it. See, the reason God ridicules them is because he knows that in reality, any attempt to throw off his ropes or to, to free ourselves of his chains, just like the psalmist writes, is a futile attempt. It's pointless. We weren't created to govern our own lives. God wins all the time. And so he takes this posture of laughter and ridicule toward those who, who try to go and make up their own rule for their own lives. He says he laughs at and ridicules them. And I love the way the psalmist refers to God here in verse 4. He says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs and ridicules. The one enthroned in heaven. This is a quick little reminder from the psalmist that the God who created all things is to be respected above all things. It's like Jesus himself says in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So friends, if this psalm teaches us anything, it teaches us that God can righteously ridicule those who sin because God righteously rules over all. He's the one who's placed breath in man's lungs, and he's the one who decides when each person will take their last breath and then give an account for how they spent their lives. God isn't like man, friends. He sits enthroned in heaven, and he observes our lives. And when we obey his commands, he's pleased. But when we strive to, to live apart from his commands, he rightly ridicules what's ridiculous. He ridicules what's ridiculous. And now with that perception of God in mind, him being the one who, who has created all things, think about how you're actually helping people when you reinforce, meaning to, to make known how God ridicules their sinful behavior. Notice the chronological order between verses 4 and 5. In verse 4, it seems that the Lord is, 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 is presently laughing and, and ridiculing because of the world's rebellion. And in verse 5, we see the word then. Some translations even say, then he will. So this is showing us that, that ridicule and laughter happens, and then there's anger and wrath from God. Friends, listen. Every single moment that we're spared from hell is a moment of opportunity for us to wake up and respond to the rule of God and to stop sinfully raging against him. So we should be glad that there's only laughter and ridicule at this point. Because according to the text, there's anger and wrath from God that awaits sinful raging. And so if you're in the room and you're not in the right kind of relationship with God, if you're here and, and, and you're not following the Lord, if, if Jesus is not Lord of your life, friend, take this as a plea from me. Stop wasting time. Stop wasting this God-given time. God's Word tells us that His mercies are new every morning, and that those who, who capitalize on this mercy by, by making Jesus Christ their Lord and devoting their lives to Him, they'll eventually get to meet Him in heaven and receive the ultimate mercy and the ultimate grace and the ultimate unending joy and, and full redemption and unimaginable fulfillment. God has that promise to those who capitalize on the mercy that he gives. But if you're not one of those people, 
you won't like God when you meet him. Because what he brings to you is anger and wrath and an eternity to be spent in hell. So hear me plead with you, friend. Stop wasting time. If you've not made Jesus your Lord, stop wasting the time of grace. And I hope someone's sitting there at this point just kind of asking themselves, like, well, how do I do that? You may be saying, I recognize that I am raging against the Lord in sin. He isn't Lord of my life. So how do, I, how do I stop wasting the time that he's given for me to recognize his rule? Well, I think the psalm shows us exactly how to do that in these next set of verses. Like I said at the beginning of this sermon, this psalm is what scholars have labeled as a royal psalm, which means it was written to speak of God's favor toward his earthly kings and, and how he used them to demonstrate his dominion on earth. But now it simultaneously pointed to the promised Messiah king, who would eventually come to provide the ultimate salvation for God's people, the ultimate salvation. And this psalm in particular uh, is believed to have been used at at coronation ceremonies, meaning when a king was was taking the throne in Israel and there was a ceremony to celebrate his new reign, when he was preparing to begin his reign over the nation and the nation was recognizing his newfound authority, this psalm would be read or it would be sang and the nation of Israel would, would Rejoice in remembering God's promises to give them kings that would lead them well and allow them to to be protected from any foreign nations and any enemies that wanted to overtake them. So in its immediate context, this psalm is showing us that God ruled on earth by using kings on earth. But when we lift up the psalm and and we consider it in real time and and we use this psalm as kind of a lens to look through and, and glance back at the entirety of human history and past, we see what the immediate audience didn't know yet. Because while God did use their earthly kings to show his rule over other earthly kings, we know that there's also a heavenly king. We know that there's also the heavenly king, Jesus. And this heavenly king, friends, has demonstrated his rule over any kingdom that will exist at any time. And most importantly, he's, he's demonstrated his rule over the kingdom of sin and darkness and sinful raging sinful depravity. He rules over all those things. And so with the question, what must I do to stop wasting time? Friends, all you've got to do is become a citizen of the heavenly king's kingdom. Become a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. And he's provided the way for our citizenship. The cost has been paid. He lived the perfect life that we can't live, a life without a hint of sin. But then he willingly embraced the cross so that all of his righteousness could become ours and all of our sinfulness would become his on the cross. In doing this, friends, he was both king and servant. He was killed by crucifixion to take the punishment that we all deserve. But then after three days, this king rose from the dead and he provided a permanent defeat of sin and death. And then he promised that anyone who follows him would also one day have new life in the same way that he has. And all you've got to do, all you must do to become a citizen of this king's kingdom is to repent, respond with faith in him, believe the truth about his life, death, and resurrection, make him your Lord, and then rejoice in your citizenship. So submission 
to King Jesus is the way that we stop wasting time and capitalize on this period of mercy that the Lord has given us. That's how we stop wasting time and capitalize on mercy in between now and the coming wrath. And that brings us to my third point. How do we demonstrate we have confidence in our Lord's kingship? We respond to God-given royalty. Respond to God-given royalty. Now we see in verse 6 what God says to his people in his anger and his wrath. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my king on my holy mountain. And now again, in the immediate context, this is the Lord talking about his installation of, of earthly kings in Israel. And when he mentions Zion, he's referring to the earthly mountain that was within Jerusalem, which is uh, the city where God's people dwelled and, and the city where God's temple was built. But if we look throughout the rest of Scripture, we'll notice that Zion also becomes a metaphor to refer to the place where God's people would dwell in eternity. So while this first referred to the installation of, of, of earthly kings on an earthly mountain, it points forward to the more significant King Jesus and the more significant kingdom of heaven. And that alone shapes the way we view the rest of the psalm. So when it mentions the anointed one in verse 2 or the king in verse 6, we can know that it's not only talking about human kings. And then in verses 7 through 9, we read about the son who will inherit the nations and, and the earth, and, and then we see how he'll shatter other nations like pottery with an iron scepter. We can know that it's not just talking about earthly nations and earthly shattering, but God inspired this psalm to be written so that we would have the hope of all things, all things in opposition to him, one day being eternally wiped out. Everything in opposition to God and his rule being eternally done away with. So Jesus is the one who the peoples rage against when they plot and, and sinfully rage against the Lord's commands. And Jesus is the one who will ultimately destroy anything opposed to his Father's commands. Friends, he's coming back to wipe out sin and sickness and raging and rebellion and poverty and persecution and disobedience and disunity and war and weakness and famine and fallenness. God is coming back. Jesus is coming back a second time to wipe out all of these, these friends. And this is good news for us as God's people. Anything that stands in opposition to God's commands, Jesus is coming back to wipe it out. And because he's coming back to wipe it out, we can rest assured that if we're faithful to recognize sinful raging, to reinforce God's righteous ridicule, we align ourselves with a royal king who has already established the ultimate rule. Every time the Israelites would have, would have heard this song, they would, they would have been challenged to respond to the royalty of their earthly king. But when we read this song, we get to respond to the God-given royalty that we know belongs to King Jesus. He's the epitome of royalty, and his royalty merits our response. The, resp the royalty of Jesus merits a response from us as God's people. And I, I actually want to take a quick second to show us how this plays out through the narrative of Scripture. I don't usually have people flip this many places in one sermon, but I think this is good. A brother showed it to me, and I think it, 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 it supplements what we're seeing here in Psalm 2. So we're going to do a quick Bible drill, okay? Uh, so buckle up, get ready to flip a few different places, and just kind of hold what you see in each place in mind. And then we're going to see how the royalty of King Jesus is played out through the entire narrative of Scripture. Uh, so turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel chapter 7.
And when you get there, look at verse 16. Now, a little bit of context. Uh, This is the Lord making a covenant with King David, who was considered to be the greatest amongst the earthly kings of Israel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, he says this. He says, your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. So keep just that one sentence in mind, and then flip two books over to 2 Kings 25, verses 6 through 7. Second Kings 25, verses 6 through 7. Now, at this point in the Bible, we're reading about the Israelite kingdom being captured by the foreign kingdom of Babylon. And their king, Babylon's king, does what we read in verses 6 through 7 of Second Kings 25. It says, The Chaldeans seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Finally, The king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. Now, Zedekiah was a descendant of David, and he was the Israelite king at the time we read about it in 2 Kings 25. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and when he captures the kingdom of Israel, he kills Zedekiah's sons and then blinds Zedekiah so that the last thing Zedekiah would ever see was his sons being killed. Now, scholars believe that Nebuchadnezzar may have known about God's covenant with King David. And so by him coming and and killing Zedekiah's sons and then blinding him, it's almost as as if Nebuchadnezzar is making a statement of confidence in himself. So he knows about that covenant where uh, God has told King David, Israelite, my people, they'll have a kingdom that endures forever. He comes in and captures their kingdom, and then he blinds the king after seeing his sons be killed. So it's almost like he's saying, no, forget what your God said. Me, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm the divine one. I'm the one whose kingdom will endure forever. And now if we stop right there, if the Bible didn't go on after this point, we'd be tempted to believe it was true, right? Like the sons are dead. Zedekiah has been blinded. How does the kingdom go on? Flip with me to the very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew starts his introduction to the gospel where he tells the story of Jesus Christ and he begins with this sentence, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, a.k.a. one of Israel, a coming king. And then Matthew goes on, and and throughout his gospel, he mentions the word kingdom 37 times. And with that, I believe he's showing us that even though Nebuchadnezzar had the upper hand on God's people for a temporary period of time, even though he had the upper hand and, and killed Zedekiah's sons and then blinded King Zedekiah, what we see here. And what Matthew's trying to show us is that God would eventually end that trend of God's people being wiped out by foreign kingdoms. 
And he's going to establish his permanent kingdom through the king, King Jesus Christ. Through the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus, there's a permanent victory that God's people now have. And again, this is good news for us. Because in the same way that these, those who would have been a part of the nation of Israel would have seen hard times at the time of this song being written, in the same way that they would have been captured by foreign nations, we as God's people today, we're going to see hard times as we live in this world that is, again, sinfully raging against the Lord. As this world continues to rage in sin and we strive to live in holiness and glorify our God, we will see difficult times. But the hope that we have is in the reality of Jesus breaking the sinful world with his iron scepter, just like this psalm tells us he's going to do. It was talking about the earthly kings of Israel, but it's also pointing to the more significant king, Jesus. He's the eternally declared royal king, and we should respond to his royalty by doing what the last few verses of this psalm encourage. We want to rejoice in God-given rule. Rejoice in God-given rule. So this is my final point. Rejoice in God-given rule. Verses 10 through 12 of this psalm, they read, So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun, or he will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. These verses are pretty much self-explanatory. After the psalmist declares that, that God's kings will reign in the end, he invites all of the kings, all of the kings on earth, and as a byproduct, everybody else in the world to respond by submitting to God's rule and paying homage to God's son, the true king. And verse 11 even says that they should serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. So they want to rejoice in sovereign rule. And so, friends, my question for us all, the question we walk away from this passage, hopefully having in our minds, are we living in this way? Do we live in the way that verses 10 through 12 call the world to live before God? I know I've said it several times, but we're living in a society that is gradually making it harder and harder to do things like recognize sinful raging, reinforce righteous ridicule, or respond to the royalty of Jesus. Living a Christian life may not always be an easy thing to do. We're going to see difficult times as we strive to glorify the Lord in this world. And so I want to leave you all with three encouragements as you strive to do that. Like as you strive to glorify God, here's three encouragements I think that you should uphold. The first one is this. Never forget that in spite of the way things may appear, being under God's rule is the absolute best thing for us as God's people. Being under God's rule is the best thing for us as God's people. We were created to, to thrive in relationship with the Lord, and obeying His commands is what keeps us there in right relationship with Him. So never forget, in spite of the way things may appear, God's rule is what's best for our lives. And then number two, remember what love actually is. Remember what love actually is. I think one of the ways that our world rages today is, is by trying to redefine what love is and saying that, that us being honest with people and telling them about their, their standing before the Lord, 
saying that it's un- unloving to call sin, sin when we see sin. Don't buy into that. Remember what love actually is. Because the most loving thing you can do for someone is to tell them the truth about their standing before God. So remember what love actually is. And then my third encouragement is this. Search your own heart for the ways that you may be raging against the Lord. Search your own hearts. I think it's important for us to remember that we're not immune to this temptation. We as God's people are also still being sanctified by God. So there'll be times where our flesh leads us to want to rage against Him and His rule. We want to throw off His chains and, and tear His ropes off of us. But in those moments, man, pray for the Lord to give you strength to endure in holiness. Read God's Word so that you have a defense against those moments of temptation. And press into the church community that you have. Be honest with one another. Confess sin to one another. Invite one another into your lives so that you can be prayed for and so that you won't walk this life striving for holiness alone. So my three encouragements. Never forget that in spite of the way things appear, God's rule is what's best for our lives. Remember what love actually is. And then search your own heart for the ways that you may be raging against the Lord. Let me pray for you all as you strive to go and do that. Father, we need your help in this endeavor. It is impossible for us to to live glorifying your name apart from your help. We can set out to recognize sinful raging. We can set out to reinforce righteous ridicule. We can even set out to respond to your royalty. But God, if your spirit doesn't empower us and help us in these tasks, we'll fail in it. And so I pray for every heart and mind in this room, every person that has a desire to follow you and to live in submission to your rule over all things. Would you empower them by your spirit, God? Build them up in the truth of your word so that we can do what your word calls us to do, so that we can live pure and holy lives before you, allowing the world to see what purity and holiness truly looks like. Would you help us all in this, God? We ask in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen.